0: Welcome to Unseen Unknown, I'm Jasmine Bina. For the third episode in our series on systems and flux, we're talking about the invisible systems that make a culture tight or loose, relaxed or rigid. The culture in your state might be loose, while the overall culture of your country may be tight. The culture at your school may be relaxed, but at your fancy gym, it's in fact quite rigid. Every single culture and subculture falls along the tight, loose continuum, and it affects people's perceptions of threat how they relate to each other, how they consume, and of course the narratives that shape the businesses and brands that form within that culture. Michelle Gelfand is the author of Rulemakers, Rule Breakers, and her life's work has been spent researching something extremely fascinating, how tight and loose cultures form in the first place, and if and how they can actually be changed. Of all the studied cultural phenomena out there, This is perhaps one of the most important in helping us understand the world in this very moment, and as we love to discuss on Unseen Unknown, why the world works the way that it works. Tight and loose cultures are systems that have been especially in flux over the past few years, and once you understand the concept, it will not only reveal a new perspective on the world of business and branding, it will also reveal the deeper logic beneath the many seemingly illogical things in the world that may have been on your mind lately.
1: but I have a story about how I kind of accidentally discovered cross-cultural psychology. I was pre-med and I uh, was at Colgate University. I left to go uh, for a semester abroad to London. And I remember really being totally shocked when I got to London in terms of the differences. In, and I remember calling my father, Marty from Brooklyn, and confiding in him how much culture shock I was having, among other things, the idea that people were just going from London to Paris or to Amsterdam just for the weekend. And my dad said something that really changed my life. He said, Well, imagine like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania. And I'm like, that's a great metaphor. And actually, the next day, this is a true story, I booked a trip from London to Egypt. And it was really there in Egypt when I was traveling around it and thereafter around the world where I recognized just how powerful a force culture was. And so I came back to Colgate, and I luckily was able to find a class on cross-cultural human development taught by Carolyn Keating, who was telling us about all her work in Africa on visual illusions and how they're not universal. And um, and I went to the University of Illinois, worked with Harry Triandis. From then was history. You know, I'd just been uh, spending my life in studying this invisible, powerful force that affects us all.
0: Define for us how you delineate between tight and loose cultures. What are the differences? How are they formed?
1: You know, all cultures have social norms or unwritten rules for behavior. You know, we're socialized from a young age to wear clothes when we leave the house, most of us, um, to not steal people's food off their plates in restaurants or not to sing loudly in libraries or in movie theaters. You know, we kind of implicitly learn the codes of our cultures in terms of following social norms. And what I've been focusing on is the idea that groups vary in how strictly they adhere to social norms. And some groups are very strictly adhere to norms. They're tight in our language. And other groups are more permissive. They're much more loose. And basically, all cultures have tight and loose elements. Uh, But what we can see from our research is that you can place groups on a continuum in general from tight to loose. For example, cultures in our data that veer tight include places like Singapore and Japan and Austria. And cultures that veer more loose include places like Spain and the Netherlands and the US and Brazil. And, you know, it's important, you know, not, neither is intrinsically good or bad. It really depends on your vantage point. Tight cultures provide a lot of order, a lot of discipline. And loose cultures are the bastions of creativity and tolerance. And so it's really um, something to really understand in terms of why these cultures evolve the way they do. Why might some cultures be tighter or looser? And that was really the subject of our first study on tight, loose and what was fascinating is, you know, tight cultures on the one hand and loose cultures on the other weren't united by any obvious features. They didn't share the same geography or the same uh, religion or tradition. They didn't share differences in wealth either, but they did share something really pretty profound. Tight cultures in our data tended to have much more collective threat in their histories. And that threat could be from mother nature. Like think about. Japan having chronic natural disasters. Or it could be from human nature. Think about places that have had constant invasions on their soil or have had high population density um, where there's potentially a lot of chaos or even pathogen outbreaks. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. When you have chronic threat, you need stricter rules to help coordinate and to survive. That's not to say that all tight cultures have had a lot of threat or all loose cultures have been on easy street, but In general, tightness tends to evolve from having a lot of collective threat. So that's kind of a big picture summary. Um, In the book, Rulemakers, Rule Breakers, I talk a lot about how we can analyze our many different contexts through a tight, loose lens, whether it's nations or states, organizations, even our own households and our individual mindsets.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm wondering how powerful is threat really does it take much of a threat to create a tight culture or does it take very little?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really important and fascinating question. In fact, prior to COVID, I would have had a different answer <laughs> to this question because a lot of our uh, research in the laboratory, like if we bring people into the lab and we activate threat, like fake threat, you know, we talk about potential terrorist um, attacks or we talk about population density increasing or other types of threats we see quickly that people tend to like rules more they want rules they have this intuition that having rules helps in these kinds of contexts whether they understand that you know consciously or not we saw that with the boston bombing for example or 911 we saw that you know immediately we have you know accept more rules and again the intuition that rules can help coordinate during these kinds of contexts but you know what was fascinating is that last march in 2020 I was starting to get really nervous about, you know, whether or not the U S with its great amount of looseness is going to be able to tighten up as quickly as other cultures that have experienced a lot of chronic threat. You know, looseness is great for, like I mentioned, for things like creativity and innovation and tolerance, but there's a real question of whether these cultural traits are a mismatch during times of collective threat. And, And so I started studying this, partnering with computer scientists, seeing, well, is it the case that loose groups tighten up, you know, less quickly? Is it the case that this affects their ability to contain the disease in terms of cases and deaths? And and sure enough, what we found in a paper we just published in the Lancet is that loose groups across 57 countries had five times the cases and almost nine times the deaths as tighter cultures. And this was controlling for many different factors that could be important in predicting these variables. Things like population density, like average age, wealth, inequality, and tightness, looseness predicted above and beyond these variables. And what was really fascinating from my point of view was we found that loose cultures were far less fearful of COVID, not just in the first 100 days of the virus, but also throughout COVID-19 up until the date we were analyzing this data, which was mid October, whereas tight cultures had far more fear. It was in the order of seventy percent of people, on average, in tight cultures were very scared of getting COVID, whereas only fifty percent in loose cultures were. And and this was astonishing to me because loose cultures were doing much worse, but they were still less fearful. And that just suggests to me that in order to tighten, you need to have that fear response. If that fear response is hijacked in some way, then we might have this mismatch between you know our kind of cultural traits and what's required in those situations. And and, and I think that. We really need to understand kind of the liabilities of looseness during times of collective threat and, again, develop interventions really to help people understand the enormity of this pathogen and also, the again, the idea that this is temporary. You, you, we could see places like New Zealand, which is famously loose in our data, they were able to pivot and, and, and be more ambidextrous, we can say, about culture, meaning like tightening quickly in order to help grapple with this collective threat. So culture is not destiny, but we need to be aware of these codes in order to negotiate them.
0: So would you go so far as to say that tight or loose cultures can actually affect your perception of a threat?
1: Well, yeah, because when you're in a context that's had a history of a lot of threat, it becomes something that's chronically accessible in the population is what I would say. Um, if we in the US were constantly invaded by Mexico and Canada, you know, throughout our, our history, uh, you know, if we constantly had chronic natural disasters or chronic pathogens, then we would have this kind of cultural preparedness to know that sacrificing liberty for some constraint temporarily is important, that it saves lives.
0: How do the people that are raised in tighter loose cultures relate to the idea of of authority? Because you did mention in the book how different cultures create different kinds of authority.
1: Yeah, well, I think that in general, you know, in loose cultures, you're socialized from an early age to question all sorts of rules. You look at books in, you know, the bookstore, mainstream American bookstores, they're all about breaking the rules. And if you live in a context where there's less threat, those codes really make a lot of sense. But if you live in contexts where there's a lot of collective threat, then following the rules is going to be more important. And 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 transmitting those kinds of values and norms to kids is going to be more important. This also applies, by the way, even within our country. Um, Some of our research, we've been looking at differences across social classes. And you can think about people in the working class having a lot of threat, like chronically having to worry about slipping into poverty, into hard living, Chronically living in neighborhoods that are more dangerous and being in occupations that not only have more structure and less discretion, but that are also more dangerous. And in our research, we could see that working class families, parents think rules are much more important than middle and upper class families where there's a cushion, there's a safety net. If you do something wrong, you can, you know, you're not going to be in dire straits. And, and I mentioned this is socialized very early. Uh, we could see this mm-hmm. even among three year old kids in our laboratory who are playing with puppets who start violating the rules. It's the working class kids in our data that are much more likely to protest when the puppet starts breaking the rules. So it's not as though rules aren't important in any social class or any culture. They are, but it's the matter of how much they're negotiable.
0: Yeah. you know This idea of how if there is chaos in our lives or lack of control, people are pretty willing to give up a lot of liberties for like a strong hand that would actually promise some some idea of normalcy totally that is
1: totally right and in fact you know we just published a chapter on culture and populism that applies exactly what you said you're a great psychologist jasmine like this is perfect (laughs) hypothesis you know that (laughs) when people feel threat whether it's perceived or it's actual then it makes sense that they want stricter rules and stricter leaders who are going to deliver that kind of structure. And we know from the election dynamics that this was found to be the case. So before the 2016 election, we were measuring in the US how much threat people perceived from ISIS, from immigration, from other threats. And sure enough, people who felt a lot of threat they felt the US was too loose. Uh, and they they wanted a stricter ruler like Trump. This was also rep- replicated in France during the Le Pen election. And it also helps to explain some puzzling phenomenon, like why were people in Iraq, welcoming ISIS in some areas? Uh, you know, it just sounds ridiculous to Americans. And, and in fact, when we look at some of the data being collected on the ground during that time, my colleague Manco Dagir was measuring people's sense of security, their sense of Normlessness uh, in some of these areas, and sure enough, you know uh, the places where ISIS took over rather quickly felt like there was just a sense of normative breakdown, and whereby you know you're yearning for some kind of order, and you know the same thing applied in in many ways to Arab Spring. You know, once Mubarak was taken out, this very strong you know strong man, things tended to go to the opposite direction, and they went to extreme normlessness and chaos. You know, you heard people shouting freedom in the streets of Cairo. But in fact, it quickly became obvious that, you know, there was very little coordination, a lot more crime, a lot more disorder. And sure enough, in armed data, people who felt that, that things were getting too loose, they wanted another autocrat. They wanted the return of, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood or Salafi government. This is a common pattern that we often miss in foreign policy, that when we leave, when we see a place losing control of their norms having no order, they yearn for extremists and autocrats to fill that void. And, uh, you know, it's not the only reason why that autocratic recidivism, we can call it, happened. But it's certainly culture is an important part of that story.
0: You also expand on this a little bit in your whole chapter on America's warring states. Because I think I, like many people before they read this book, if they just heard of the concepts tight and loose, they might Confuse tight, and loose for conservative and liberal, but they're not the same, are they?
1: That's right. I mean, conservative is really a mindset, a preference for stability and traditions. And certainly, conservatives probably would like to live in contexts where there's stricter rules, and they even, in fact, probably are able to enforce them more. But you can certainly find loose domains among conservatives, and you can find tight domains among liberals. So, you know, environmentalism. Is really a very tight domain for liberals. It's something that is becoming an ultra rallying point around having stricter rules in this context. And it's not the case among conservatives. So I think we can think about, you know, zooming into any context, what domains are tight? What domains are loose? Why might that be the case? And then, of course, thinking about, you know, how to negotiate those.
0: Yeah. So I want to start applying this to branding a little bit, and let's talk about this in a brand context. When it comes to political brands, is there anything that ever beats the threat story?
1: Well, I don't know uh, I don't, I'm not a branding researcher, but I can say that you know threat is certainly a primal response, uh, and we don't always realize it's affecting us. Like I mentioned in our laboratory research, you know we we can easily manipulate threat, activate fake threat, and we see you know pretty quickly people have this kind of tightening response. That is to say that they start desiring stricter rules, stricter leaders, they start becoming more focused on order and discipline to the, you know, kind of sacrifice of creativity and tolerance. So we see this in the laboratory. It's not it's not obviously long lasting because it's just a <laughs> rinky-ding prime <laughs> in the laboratory. But clearly, you know, I would say when it comes to using threat messaging, it's a mixed bag when it comes to trying to get people to, change their behavior. Like, for example, if people are just told that COVID is really threatening, unless they feel that they have some kind of efficacy to deal with it, they might withdraw completely and it might backfire. A lot of research and psychology would suggest that. So I think when we use threat as a messaging technique, particularly to deal with a collective threat, we need to really couple it with strong sense of empowerment that we can do this. You know, that said, you know, I think it's a fascinating area. I just wrote a paper on tight, loose and consumer behavior. Some of the things we talked about, for example, were that brands in tight cultures that have a lot of threat might have more stability, tradition, reliability, formal types of themes, whereas cultures that veer looser might have more kind of risk-taking, creative, informal types of themes. And anecdotally, we could see some of this, even in the same industry, like Harley Davidson, you know, is like, oh, let's screw it. Let's ride, you know, real kind of like, you know, loose kind of mentality, whereas Suzuki, you know, is more like about performance, performance Mm. above all. And even in the banking industry, I've seen anecdotally, again, we don't have a lot of research on this, but I put some money on this. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. that, No pun intended, but American banks, you know, like Chase, you know, they emphasize like innovative banking features. You look at places like in India, India Corp Bank, it's more about safety, security. So I think that branding also uh, is something that really reflects these cultural codes. And We probably expect to see much more variability in loose cultures and the kinds of brands that people try and see if they work and try to differentiate ourselves from our competitors with different types of brands where I think you'd see a lot more homogeneity in branding in in tighter cultures. That's my, that's my speculation. Uh, Mm -hmm. I say we put some money on it and get some research done on this because I think (laughs) it's really, I think it's a really important topic and I'm fascinated by it. The paper tight, loose and consumer behavior is on my website for anyone that's interested in it. Oh, yeah,
0: for sure. We'll link to it in the show notes for this podcast. Awesome. All right. So, you know, this idea that in the US, unlike other cultures, we don't have very strong parenting norms. So oftentimes parents feel very lost. I, as a parent myself, have experienced this full hand or firsthand. And (laughs) it seems to have created massive room for industries that teach you how to parent. And some of the most lucrative portions of that industry are based on threat stories. You know, when I think of like baby safe foods, baby safe clothes, baby safe toys, non toxic, you know, things that I've spent a fortune on because it is a very, like you said, primal cultural reflex. I mean, this might just be a primal human reflex, you know, trying to keep your children safe. But do you feel that loose cultures like ours specifically do create these kinds of branding opportunities? <laughs> and, and, and they seem like branding opportunities where businesses and organizations are stepping in where the culture mm-hmm. can't answer a problem.
1: Yeah, it's such a fascinating question because in tighter cultures, we know that there's just stronger sort of s- situations in the sense that, you know, people are co-oriented to like, what's the right way to do things? Have a shared reality around things. Think about the military, you know, that's a tight organization where like people are socialized, they have strong socialization so that people co-orient to the same reality, that's really helpful during collective threat. Loose cultures have much more variability in how we train people to think and and what we value. So that creates a space for lots of different narratives to fill and way more variability on what's the right or wrong way to do things. that in tighter cultures, there's much more restricted range of how we think about things like parenting. Uh, And, you know, I would say that I've seen it on both ends of the spectrum. You know, some some of the branding's all around tightness for parenting, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, the kind of expensive schools that you know, all these kinds of threatening, you know, toxins and you know, you know, basically helicopter like parenting, ultra tight types of parenting. But you also see the flip side, which is more of the kind of movement around no, 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 let's have laissez faire parenting. You know, that's mm-hmm. the way to go. And you know, like no, we you know. You have too many rules for kids, and rule kids. You know, need to kind of experience life, and you know, you have a whole other movement that's on that end of the spectrum. And you know, I think it raises another interesting question: you what you're mentioning, which is that that just suggests that parents are going to have a lot more conflict on what's the right yes. or wrong answer if we have so much variability. And you know, I don't, we, I don't think we think about this when we marry someone. We don't think about well, how tight or loose is that person's mindset? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on my website, I have a tight loose mindset quiz that's based on our our data. You know, people who tend to veer tighter. They like more structure, they're more focused on not making mistakes, they have higher impulse control. And on the flip side, you have people who veer looser, they're less attentive to rules, they're more risk-taking. Again, like to the extent that we don't really think about who we're marrying. You can imagine you get into a marital situation where your your partner veers very differently in their parenting philosophy, and you really realize that. And then you're in, you know, predicament, you got to negotiate these differences. And I, I for one, can say that's the case. I veer on the looser mindset, my Mm -hmm. husband, who's a lawyer- veers tighter and he's kind of mortified by my dishwasher loading behavior and other (laughs) (laughs) other markers of looseness. But you know, the thing is that, you know, these things aren't destiny. We can negotiate culture in the household. And I'll just mention one more thing about this. Research does suggest that either two strict parents or two laissez-faire parents produce maladaptive kids.
0: Just like your country chart in the book, Super tight or super loose cultures tend to be the ones that suffer the most, but finding that right balance is is the difficult piece. You know, when you look at places like Singapore, which you mentioned earlier, in Thailand, they're tight cultures, but they're working hard to bring in tourism dollars. And a lot of times those tourism dollars come from very loose countries. What happens there? Like when these tight cultures need to attract loose dollars and they meet on their home turf, like, is there a tension? Is there is there a risk? Like what happens?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, and it just gets to this broader issue of the importance of being culturally intelligent. You know, CQ or cultural intelligence is really becoming more and more important in the context of globalization. And in particular, when it comes to tight loose, you know, the idea of knowing your audience, knowing where they're coming from in terms of their level of tightness and looseness, I think is enormously important. And often we ignore it in business, international business, you know, at our peril. We tend to, to focus on strategy and other types of things, but we often miss that kind of cultural iceberg. And, you know, I studied this actually when it comes to expatriates, you know, and found that it's a lot harder to go to tight cultures, much more difficulty adjusting. But also what was really interesting is that people coming from tight cultures going elsewhere were more adaptable. And it might be because they're used to kind of reading the situation and then and following the rules that go along with that. And so really, it's quite possible that the context of Singapore, you know, that it's really on the mindset of, you know, we need to be ambidextrous. We need to deploy tight advertising in context where it works and and need to loosen up and be more attentive to like I mentioned, ads that might focus on risk-taking and creativity and informality that wouldn't work necessarily in tighter cultures, but that might work in, in looser contexts. So I think anywhere what we need to do is first and foremost understand tight and loose and where it comes from, and then be strategic about being ambidextrous when we are operating in other cultures. And, and I can mention also in, in a study that we've recently done, we talked about it in a, in a Harvard Business Review paper you know, we know that this is really difficult to do. It's not easy. It's, a bit, you know, the devil's in the details. We studied um, cross-border mergers and acquisitions across many, many different companies and many across years. And we found that countries that had big differences in tight and loose suffered a lot in terms of their performance in these mergers. That was, you know, particularly the case. In context where they were in creative type of industries where people had to actually deal with each other versus like manufacturing. <laughs> but the, the important point gets back to this issue of negotiating. It's really understanding where we're coming from and then negotiating, you know, what domains should be tight? What domain should be loose? Which branding should be tight? Which should be loose? Depending on the context, the more we recognize this invisible force, you know, and start really drilling down to why it exists, I think the better off. Will be able to adapt in these marketing contexts.
0: I really feel like you have this secret formula for understanding everything <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Something I forgot to mention earlier that your tight loose framework predicted the Trump election over forty times better than even the most mainstream predictive tools out there. Is that correct? Yeah, I think
1: you know it's one of the tools. I, I never want to totally say like it's the uh, clearly it's not the only construct that's important in predicting human behavior. But I think that it's useful to think about why it would affect things like national elections, because here we have this issue of threat. And as I mentioned, threat can be real, and it can be misperceived, and it can be manipulated. We don't tend to focus on these kinds of things. I was just actually listening to a webinar, you know, trying to understand the rise of autocracy. And Obviously there's, there's a bunch of factors, but culture matters for this. And I don't think it's something that just applies to Trump. You know, these, these leaders will come and go, but what won't come and go, what's a cultural mainstay is the perception of threat. So I see kind of two different tensions. One is that, you know, misperceiving a real threat and not tightening enough. That's what we found in COVID. That's one kind of mismatch that we have to really deal with. But on the flip side, what we're talking about now is like what happens when actually there's, Misperceived fake threat and that's causing tightening when it shouldn't happen. And when that happens, it of course deals with this trade off of of order versus openness. You know, the tighter that we tend to move in general, we tend to sacrifice openness and creativity and vice versa. So I think that one of the most important challenges that we face is trying to calibrate in terms of the level of threat we have and, and be ambidextrous. And we need to do this in the US. We need to prepare ourselves for the next major threat, how can we really come together to tighten temporarily?
0: Let's talk about some of the cultural shorthand or clues that you observed in your research. And, and something I want to mention too is you don't just do research in a lab. like You go into countries and do serious observations and large-scale research with populations. And I, what I loved was some of the more kind of um, quirky things that you noticed, like how public clocks are more accurate in tight cultures, or there are more left-handed people in loose cultures. What are some of the more interesting signals that you've seen around the world?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, in in the book, we have a chart that looks at how synchronized clocks are in city streets. We got this data from a colleague of ours. And, you know, it's amazing. Like in some cities, um, clocks say almost the same exact thing, like in Switzerland and Japan and Austria and in other places, clocks are off by a lot, like in Brazil and Greece. <laughs> um, and you know, you're know you not totally sure what time it is. And I think it's profoundly interesting that this is another expression of coordination. So whenever I go places, I look to see, okay, how aligned are the clocks? When they're not so aligned, I'm like, okay, I'm getting into a loose context. Other things that remind me that I'm getting into a tighter context include things like the level of uniformity or people tending to look more similar in terms of what they wear, what they drive. I look at even like how people park in parking lots. And actually, I'm really guilty of this, where like, I really bad parker, like I park out of the lines, you know, and, and I think, you know, that's another thing when you start seeing that kind of levels of norm violations, trash in city streets or graffiti When you see a lot of variability, you start getting into looser context. When you see people wearing different types of clothing and 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 wearing tattoos and uh, all sorts of other things like even wearing pajamas, you know, I've seen that in my own classrooms, by the way, people wearing PJs, Mm -hmm. that you start thinking that you're getting into a more loose environment.
0: Yeah. A couple more that I liked. You said there's more synchronicity in the stock markets of tight cultures. Yes, Right. And also loose cultures have a greater problem with self-regulation with things like food or alcohol. That's right. and also debt
1: and even weight. we analyzed you know <laughs> controlling for lots of factors across tight and loose cultures and sure enough, loose cultures have people who weigh more. When you live in a context where there's stricter regulation, when there's punishments, you, you that are, you know, real and and chronic, you learn to manage your impulses more from a young age, because you want to avoid those punishments. And so that that leads to differences in self control. And it has kind of ripple effects on things like alcoholism, drug abuse, and debt. Loose cultures struggle a lot with self regulation failures. But what you'll find on the flip side is that in context where there's less accountability, people can be more creative, and actually, we did one study where we looked at this even in the brain. I mean, we looked at how do people respond in the brain when they're witnessing norm violations, like Michelle singing in the library or dancing in the art museum, or Jasmine yelling in a bank or kissing someone in an elevator, <laughs> a crowded elevator. You know, these are all sorts of things you could study. And what we found, they were in these EEG caps as they were witnessing these kinds of norm violations. And afterwards, we gave people a creativity task where we just asked people to come up with different uses for a brick or for a paperclip, like creative uses. And what we found was really interesting. First of all, we found that in our Chinese sample, they had far more activity, brain activity in the frontal area of the brain, which is responsible for punishment decisions and thinking about behavior. Far more activity witnessed in these same violations as Americans And we also found, though, that people that had a lot of brain activity witnessing these violations were less creative. So that suggests that when you're really concerned and and disturbed by norm violations, even at the level of the neuron, you know it actually makes you see creative acts to be more dangerous too. So there's this kind of direct order versus openness trade-off that goes along with tight and loose. And people try to ask me, which is better? And it's like, well, They both have their liabilities. There really is, in the best of both worlds, we should be trying to maximize order and openness. And I'll just mention, I was asked what city might have the best Goldilocks (laughs) order and openness in the world. (laughs) And I nominated Toronto as a place that might actually maximize this because it's a context where there's a lot of diversity and a lot of tolerance, but also quite a bit of order, less crime than other cities.
0: Yeah. Toronto does feel a bit like a utopia when I go there. So I I totally get that. Okay. I want to try something. I would like to just do a quick fire round of cultures, subcultures, countries, groups, whatever. And you tell me if they're tight or loose. Okay. Let's go for it. (laughs) All right. We'll start with an easy one. France.
1: Well, yeah. France and our data veers on the looser side. Clearly there are tight domains in all cultures. And I think French society is very tight on the language. Yes. You know, you go into France and, you know, you're trying to speak French and, you know, you're going to get some serious feedback when it's not very good. Also, you know, other cherished values in France, like food, wine, you know, these things also uh, tend to be pretty tight. Like in Germany, uh, which also veers tight in general, you look at beer, something like beer in the US. I mean, crazy amounts of different types of beers you find in the US. And in Germany, I've been told that, you know, there's really very strict... Regulations on the kinds of ingredients that can go in beer. On the other hand, you know, there are domains in Germany that are looser also. You're more likely to see people, for example, some bathing nude in Germany than you would in the United States. But in general, you can see that there's a restricted range of behavior in general in both contexts.
0: Yeah, the, the language thing in France, it makes me think of the academy that they have to protect the French language from aberrations or from That's right. English words. Like when a new word comes out, like wifi or internet, they create the, the French counterpart for it. That's right. Okay.
1: Silicon Valley. I would say it veers quite loose. You know, the kind of framework of break it and then. You know, I forget the exact phrase, but, you know, it's a
0: move fast and break. Thing. Yeah,
1: move that's right. It's it, it's really a place that um, it's in a loose context. California is a loose state in our data, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. They do suffer some threat, but it's a place that's extraordinarily diverse and has been for over a century. in our data and a lot of the people that went to California were risk takers. You know, they the people that were attracted to go there and, and schlep out there, you know, had looser mindsets, we would say in our language. And I think some might argue that the Silicon Valley needs to tighten up in some context that gets to be too extreme in terms of the looseness. I had talked to some people who, who were starting up companies and it's fascinating because when you have a loose mindset and you're starting up a company, often it's the case you get bought up by tighter, larger organizations. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of starter-uppers don't really like those cultures. They, they struggle and they wind up leaving and starting up another company at uh, the serial startupers. You know, I think what's fascinating to me though is, In order to innovate, you nearly need both tight and loose. You need looseness to help create ideas, but you need tightness to scale it up and to coordinate. And so I think that at some point, any company, even as loose as it started, needs to insert some structure. I call this structured looseness in the book because you want to allow for that creativity and that idea generation, but you also need people and practices that help to structure interaction, to have accountability. On the flip side, you have some contexts that are much more tight, like airlines and the military, and they should veer tight. You know, you don't want people making all sorts of weird decisions in these contexts. They have a lot of threat, a lot of coordination needs. But these places also sometimes can use the alternative cultural code of looseness. And we call this flexible tightness. How do you insert some discretion into those systems, some looseness into some non-safety domains? It's something I'm working with the Navy with right now.
0: Okay. What about the NFL?
1: I would say that the NFL is tight compared to basketball, for example, because there's like set plays that you have that you're orchestrating. Uh, there's much more focus on sort of sticking with those plays as compared to, I would imagine in basketball where there's a lot more room for improvisation. Yeah. So I think it's fascinating to analyze sports through a tight and loose lens and looking at other sports, sports like baseball or golf or tennis. You know, another thing I'll mention that I'm interested in within the context of sports is whether or not female sports are tighter than male sports. I've often had, you know, the kind of uh, working hypothesis that lower status groups live in tighter worlds, meaning that they are subject to stricter punishments. And I have to say, from my end of one experience, watching lacrosse games, my daughters, who are crazy lacrosse players, it just looks to me like there's a lot more penalties, a lot more rule violate, you know, calling up the rule violations, a lot more like, tightness that that they're subject to, including what kind of equipment. So I think it's fascinating to look at, you know, not all sports and all contexts are equally tight. You know, they might be tighter for or looser depending on your status.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's move to a more gendered territory. What about Soul Cycle? <laughs> oh, I, I've
1: been to Soul Cycle with my brother, uh, who is a okay. crazy soul cyclist.
0: I don't have a tremendous
1: amount of familiarity, but I would probably venture to say it's pretty tight. I think it's a pretty uh, kind of strong brand, whereby you know there's a certain kind of way of being uh, the, the appropriate SoulCycle operation. That would be my hunch. What do you think?
0: You know what I have trouble with SoulCycle is like I can see like where the threat comes in with women's sports. You know the threat of like not excelling or not being taken seriously, or whatever, or the threat of like football, which actually is kind of dangerous. Cycle maybe there's a social threat there that creates more of a tight culture.
1: It's possible. Um, I, I think it's also could be just based on the founders. You know, we know mm-hmm. in organizations that the leaders' tight and loose mindsets, for whatever reason, help to sort of set the stage for that, you know, wh- how the organization develops. I read recently a paper in the management literature on how people who have a tight mindset leaders, you know, the, the organizations they create, kind of, they continue even after they leave. The level of tightness, so that's possible.
0: Very interesting. Okay, two more. I want to ask about Israel because you talk about this in the book, but you know, Israel has a huge startup economy, but also a very threatened region. So where does it fall?
1: Yeah, Israel is a really interesting anomaly in com- when it comes to the theory because it's obviously a place that has high density, it has a lot of conflict. It's a place that should arguably tight, but In our data that we collected in uh, early 2000s, and then more recently replicated this again, Israel comes out as quite loose, a place where people feel like the rules are negotiable. And of course, there's lots of variation in terms of secular versus orthodox, which is another way to think about tight, loose in religions, and also regionally in, in Israel, Jerusalem versus Tel Aviv. But in general, our data suggests that Israel is quite loose. There's a couple of reasons that the threat instinct might be overridden in Israel, one is which is diversity. Diversity in any context tends to push groups to have more looseness because it's harder to agree upon any particular norm up to a point when there's extreme heterogeneity, like in Pakistan, like stricter rules start evolving because that's can be very chaotic. But in general, diversity pushes groups to be loose. The other thing about Israel that's really interesting is that the religion itself promotes a lot of debate and debate pushes groups towards looseness. So if anyone goes to a Jewish service or like reads, you know, the Torah sees that no one could agree on anything. You know, there's constantly just like incredible amount of debate and disagreement about basic things. It's really part of the culture. I would mention though, like I've talked about in all cultures, even that are loose, there's some very tight domains. And Israel certainly has some of those. So one domain that's really pretty tight in Israel, is ch- having children. Okay. It's really like, I've heard that, you know, if you don't have children, you know, you're practically a criminal in Israel. You know, it's mm. it's really very, very strict rule to have families, have big families. And, you know, that in itself suggests some kind of survival mechanism to deal yeah. with threat. Yeah, And incidentally, that norm is now kind of butting heads with environmental collapse in
0: terms of population density and resource scarcity and things like that. Even just the fact that I think Israel, if I'm remembering correctly, it has experienced a lot of migration out of the country. A lot of young people moving out, you know, studying abroad, staying abroad. So I'd imagine it, it maybe even created added tightness to to that topic. Okay. Last one, 4chan.
1: Oh yeah, I would say famously normalists, <laughs> extremely loose. Like we see, you know, on the on the web. It's a really big challenge in terms of the new world that we live in, that tends to be pretty normalist. And the main reason is really about accountability, I think. If you really think about it, the places like 4chan that veer extraordinarily loose are places where there's a lot of anonymity. You know, you don't have to make a profile, username, you're assigned a number for posts, and it makes it pretty much impossible to enforce any consequences or to form any meaningful relationship with other people. The other thing about 4chan that's really interesting when it comes to accountability is that your posts can disappear after a certain amount of time. And this impermanence of things can really add to the normlessness. So, you know, I think when we think about the web, and we're doing some research on this now, I I talk about it in the last chapter of the book, you know, how do we harness the power of culture to create spaces that have more of the Goldilocks, like we want uh, across social media to have a lot of latitude, and it's a really great context for idea generation for connectivity. But we also want to have some accountability in the system. We want to be in a place where we don't experience a lot of normlessness. We know that that's extremely stressful to people on our data. It's not the amount of time you spend online, it's the perceived normlessness that's really um big problem. So, you know, I think part of what we're trying to figure out in our research is what are the structural features that in, in these different platforms that lend themselves to having more or less accountability? And then how can we tweak them so that we can have places that balance autonomy and freedom with some levels of accountability to make them civil, livable places? That's not 4chan.
0: <laughs> right, right. You know, it's so interesting. I just want to pause on it for a moment. The fact that it's not the amount of time you spend online. It's the perceived normlessness that creates stress in people. Wow. That that kind of blows my mind. Okay. What can people do as individuals in their own lives to make sure that they're responding to threats, perceived threats, the the stress of normlessness appropriately, and not having a skewed response or responding to things that are engineered to make them respond or whatever? How do you have a healthy relationship to this kind of stuff?
1: It's a great question. And I think all things around cultural intelligence get back to knowing yourself. Where do you veer, tight or loose? And why might that be the case? You know, are you what we call an order Muppet, using Dolly Lube's famous metaphor, the order Muppets, you know, like Kermit the Frog and Ernie, you know, basically loving order and noticing rules, or, or are you a chaos Muppet, you know, and these are kind of rough distinctions, you know, like Cookie Monster and Animal, uh, you know, these are, you know, Muppets that like disorder, They're, or at least they tolerate disorder, and they like openness, they don't necessarily notice rules. And I, and on the website, I mentioned, you know, you can think about where you fall on this continuum. And why might that be the case? And then I think we can think about, okay, wait, if we really veer very tight, where might we kind of loosen up a little bit? And same with when we start thinking about other people in our lives, whether they're our spouses or kids or colleagues or friends, we have to try to understand why people might veer very differently than us, what might have caused that in their own lives, try to empathize with those differences. And then, as I've mentioned a couple of times, then try to negotiate them. Try to understand, you know, for people who veer tight, it's really scary to give up that rule orientation, that it feels unsafe. And how can we help them take baby steps in that direction? And on the flip side, for people who veer loose, you know, losing that autonomy feels very frustrating. And how can we convince people who veer loose that when we have threat, it's important to temporarily tighten, that it's temporary. Let's try to activate, you know, the mentality that says we can do this and then it will be done with. And I can say that it's really important to recognize that. It's those very basic psychological approaches that need to be negotiated. And they can happen. I mean, I teach negotiation. I love the study of negotiation. You know, we've developed norms. We can negotiate them. I'll just give, you know, one example. I mentioned that I veer looser, Todd veers tighter. You know, we sort of said, okay, like what domains really need to be tight in our households? You know, your health, your behavior, your... School work, how we treat each other with respect, that has, that's pretty tight. But, you know, what can we give up a little bit of slack on? You know, maybe, like, how clean their rooms are. You know, just close your door. I'm not going to look. <laughs> you mm-hmm, know, like, mm-hmm. maybe your bedtime, that's a little looser, you know, or your curfew. Like, there's ways to think about how we can give up our low-priority domains. That's really what negotiation is about, to settle on a win-win agreement. And it takes time. You know, it takes some effort. It's a little cheesy, to so ask. <laughs> But, you know, we can negotiate culture in our daily lives, and that's an exciting thing.
0: You've been in this world for so many years, just completely immersed in the subtext of culture. I wonder, has it changed the way that you form relationships with people? Wow,
1: it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, well, you know, I'm a generalist, so I think when it comes to being a scientist, my approach has been to try to have a big, large tent. I mean, I also learned this very much from Harry Triandis, my advisor, the founder of the field of cross-cultural psychology, or one of the founders, I devoted the book to him and to my dad, Marty from Brooklyn.
0: Marty from Brooklyn. Getting, yes. back, getting back to that <laughs> phone call that
1: started this whole process. And um, I think that my approach has been to try to bring in as many people to study this stuff as possible from different disciplinary perspectives. You know, I, I love to bring in computer scientists into our group and neuroscientists, political scientists, you know, all sorts of people. And then, like you mentioned, I try to interact with people who are in other spaces, who have a lot of knowledge about something that I want to know about, but also that we can add culture to their equation. So it's, it's very mutually beneficial to kind of partner with people to study culture that really have really different, very, very different vantage points.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Unseen Unknown. If you liked it, go ahead and share it with somebody that you think would appreciate it too. And a friendly reminder that you can always sign up for our newsletter, where you'll get all of our latest brand strategy, thinking, articles, videos, podcasts, everything. Just go to conceptbureau.com to subscribe. If you're new here and you like what you're listening to, we'd love it if you left us a review. I read those reviews. (laughs) They mean a lot to me, but more importantly, they help us get this podcast in front of the right people. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.